The Farnham U3A theme for the year 2018-2019 is Africa. Today, Joanne Watson is talking about Le Boudin Blanc, the French Foreign Legion and its influence in Africa. I will say before I start, this is not a military history lecture. Otherwise, we'd be here all day and probably most of tomorrow as well. But throughout history, armies have been made up of mercenaries from all parts of the world. For them, it was a livelihood, and they would fight for whoever paid them. Now, at times, their loyalty could be questioned, but many an absolute monarch or dictator relied on them when they waged wars or wanted to quell native rebellions. Now, the British Army was no exception in this, and the Papal Army, the Swiss Guard, was one of those early foreign forces. They date back to 1507. Now, in the early part of the 19th century, in the Napoleonic Wars, there were battalions of various races fighting for both sides. Some countries, such as the Swiss, seemed to specialise in providing these armed forces. One observer of Napoleon's army said, the French, being a thrifty and practical people, have always been eager to let any available foreigner assist them in any necessary bleeding and dying for la patria. But around the start of the 19th century, conscription in France began to take hold. This was done via a national lottery, but this was one prize you didn't want to win, as it meant seven years' duty. Now, the well-off were fortunate they could pay someone else to take their place. About a third of Napoleon's army who marched into Moscow in 1812 were made up of foreigners, and very few came back. Now, if we jump forward 25 years, France is ruled by King Louis-Philippe. He'd come to the throne following a revolution in 1830, but it wasn't the most stable of governments. France, who were once again seen as a centre of revolution, had attracted numerous refugees from other regimes. It was regarded as a safe haven, France had reneged on its extradition treaty with other European countries. But this posed problems. Revolutionaries of any description, especially soldiers, are seldom welcomed, and the king was looking for a way to get rid of them. So, in March 1831, the Legion was born. It was open to those aged between 18 and 40 and was to serve exclusively outside France, in this case Algiers, which the French had occupied the year before. Now, as you can imagine, these first legionnaires were a rabble, dropouts, misfits, men regarded as out of place in normal society. So it's very surprising that this unpromising lot could become such a fighting elite, well, eventually. What underlies the legion development, unlike traditional mercenaries, was that money wasn't the main or even the secondary motivating factor, which is a good job because they received very little in the way of monetary reward, And sometimes, due to corruption, they didn't even get the pittance they were due. And, to be honest, most of what they did get usually went on drink. Men, however, flocked to join up in the ranks. But as they assembled in the various towns for their training, they were notoriously ill-disciplined. Imprisoned by the dozen, corruption was rife, desertion a regular occurrence, which increased the hatred by the locals, who found their towns flooded with criminals and the destitute. The sooner they were sent on their way, the better. Now, if rank and file were foreigners, the officers and NCOs were ideally to be French. 
but few saw this as a career-enhancing prospect. More than a 1,000 officers were called out of retirement, those who were on half pace since the Napoleonic Wars. But neither they nor their uniforms had seen active service since Waterloo, and much had changed, and they were desperately out of touch. Now, not surprisingly, the better officers saw service in the Legion as a punishment, and the bad ones were a liability and the subject of frequent complaints. By necessity, some foreigners did become officers, but it didn't solve the problem of the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers, as the French largely refused to rejoin. They even decided to promote a group of German university students to run their fellow countrymen because of their social rank. But this wasn't an army where social status was an advantage. After all, many had egalitarian views and proletarian fever was very evident. Some of the students even refused to be promoted and others who had apparently not signed their papers left not wishing to fall into bad company. Now, the Legion was organized into national battalions, Swiss, Germans, Spanish, and Poles, and then a couple of mixed nationalities, though sometimes they were muddled up. By 1832, one inspection reported that of the 3,100 stationed in one city in Algeria, there were 87 French keen on swift promotion, 94 were zealous Swiss, 571 Italians were aloof and jealous, The 98 Belgians, Dutch, Danes, Swedes, and Poles got high marks, but the 10 Englishmen were little known. And then there were these troublesome Germans, more than 2,000 of them, described as a mix of deserters, political refugees, students, and lawyers of a disquieting imagination. (laughs) Thinking for yourself was not encouraged. Now, as for Algeria itself, which was to be their home for the next 130 years, the French had become involved in Algiers in part because of their empire-building plans and largely on the pretext of an insult from the ruler of Algiers itself, the Dey, who in 1827 had allegedly hit the French representative with a fly whisk. That insult needed redress, though not immediately, but eventually they invaded Algiers. They followed up with a spell of destruction and pillage of the city, obviously not endearing themselves to the locals. So not the best environment for the Legion when they arrived. The Legion's officers largely disdained their men. Morale was low. Regimental pride was non-existent. Drunkenness was endemic. And desertion still a major problem, even when it was known that the escapees once caught were court-martialed and executed. So there they were. Unwanted, disillusioned, and soon they found themselves virtually besieged. As they manned the outposts protecting the city, there were inevitable skirmishes, and although they fought bravely, many a time their tactics were left wanting and totally unsuitable in the conditions. Those legionnaires captured by the Arabs were forced to convert to Islam and join the other side, but often as slaves in chains, and many died in captivity. But whilst death in conflict was always a possibility, more devastating was the death toll by disease. Cholera epidemics repeatedly ravaged the Legion, and those who survived did so in spite of, rather than because of the hospitals and the medical attention they received, which was basic in the extreme. Some received no pay when ill and were forced to do odd jobs or sell parts of their uniform, which in itself was a court-martial offence if they survived. 
Those who weren't in hospital were engaged on public works projects, most notably road building, designed to build good relations as well as improve the infrastructure. Now, it's said that most of the good roads in North Africa have their origins in the roads built by the Legion. But other jobs included cleaning out the sewers, not the fighting man's dream. The romance of this African adventure had long since been dissipated. But worse was to come. Recruitment was down, the Spanish element wanted to fight at home, and then they were followed there by the rest of the Legion, sent to support the government in a civil war. Now, Spain was a country in turmoil. The Legion was seen, not for the first or last time, as expendable. Despite this, the best legionnaires fought bravely, despite little pay, but desertion was again a problem. And it ended up with legionnaires fighting for both sides. One German officer reported that in one battle, he saw them recognize each other, call out their names and nicknames, approach each other as friends, speak, and then kill each other in cold blood. The legion was on the brink of extinction when they were effectively forced to start again and a new legion was created and sent once more to Algiers. It was under new management, but many of the old problems remained, an army always on the brink of mutiny. Conditions were brutal. One observer said, one thing worse than fighting against the legion was fighting for them. Corporal punishment was excessive, torture and privations undermined the men and their ability as a unit, and all this for five centimes a day. Now, the physical criteria for a legionnaire, they reckon, were the thighs of a buck, the heart of a lion, and the stomach of an ant. Imagine marching with a full pack in extreme heat in the pursuit of a very evasive enemy. Water was scarce, rations almost inedible, and many of the soldiers were just unfit and lagged behind. Now, knowing that stragglers could expect to be viciously tortured and mutilated by their various enemies putting them out of their misery was considered the kinder option. One legionnaire described their end. When there was one on his last legs, we would give him a drink of taffia, a cheap rum, and then we said, now that's your last mouthful. We would stick the barrel in his mouth and pull the trigger. Then we could go off with a clear conscience. But calling in the doctor was almost an appointment with your maker anyway. One such systematically bled 17 to death to cure their heat stroke, and after their death, split their skulls open to see if he could determine the cause of the problem. At the other extreme, ventures into the mountains could mean exposure to intense cold, which they were totally unequipped to deal with. Changes had to be made, but leadership in the general officer corps was patchy, and the NCOs, often the cause of some of the worst brutality, often went untackled, a complaint that attached itself to the Corps for many years. At first, little was accomplished militarily as they needed to adapt to local conditions. The man who helped change that was Thomas Bougard. He invented a system of flying raids known as Razia and in six weeks changed the way they operated. But then he went back to Paris where he spoke out against the Legion's presence in Algeria. He wasn't your typical diplomat. He was apt to speak in corporal's language and with a volcanic temper. A farmer by background, he did, though, prove to have a superior tactical nous than his predecessors. And he was a very good farmer, as we'll come to later. When Bugard returned a couple of years later, it was as governor-general, and things looked up for the Legion. The raids he instigated brought more tangible rewards in the terms of booty, 
and with improved morale, it suddenly became a more attractive proposition. Better officers were recruited, and promotion was made open to men regardless of origin. In other words, a French officer didn't automatically take precedence. With better leadership and the prospect of real action, it felt like real soldiering and helped restore morale. Officers led their men on the march and gained promotion not by social rank. It became better functioning. They shared the ordeals and felt part of the army. Achievements became part of the legion's folklore, and pride in their regiments increased. Now the soldiers didn't want to let their comrades down. Now the Spanish and the Germans had risen to the top of the legion's honour board. The Italians were bottom, and sadly the English not much better. They apparently wouldn't engage on long marches unless they had supplementary rations. By 1842, the Corps had demonstrated they had potential as a military unit, even if it didn't disguise their poor training and their inability to march. Despite all this, recruitment was no problem. There was seemingly a never-ending supply of potential legionnaires, most for want of a better alternative. It didn't stop the drunken soldiers on a Saturday night misbehaving, but given the real sniff of soldiering, the better they performed. Now, a revolution back in Paris in 1848 caused ripples in Algeria, and not every campaign was successful. Poor political and military judgments led to setbacks with repeated uprisings from the native population. But by 1850, most of Algeria was under French control. Occupation had turned to colonisation, not necessarily securely, and other French forces were still deployed. But what to do with the Legion? Now, many back in France still regarded it as a national embarrassment and more of a penal colony. So the answer lay, in part, in other wars, the Crimea, Italian campaigns, and Napoleon III's misguided Mexican adventure. Napoleon, of course, is buried, what, 10 miles away in Farnborough, if you didn't know that. Now, in all cases, they were given the worst possible and most dangerous assignments, but they did achieve notable successes, such as the siege of Sebastopol in Crimea. In doing so, they felt for once part of the French army rather than a lost and despised sibling and, as importantly, saw their achievements reported in a positive light in France. Rigorous training was largely absent, but in spite of this, they became a force to be reckoned with, largely because many of the recruits had seen action in other armies before joining up. Now, in Mexico, Napoleon had set up an Austrian prince as Emperor Maximilian and the Legion was sent out to try and stabilise his regime. It was to be a disaster for French colonial policy and the Legion. But it led to one of the most esteemed parts of Legionnaire history. In April 1863, enter centre stage Captain Jean d'Anjou, a hero of the Crimea. He'd lost a hand when his musket had exploded on an expedition in Algeria and had substituted it with a wooden one. He was in charge of a 65-strong reconnaissance party. Searching for Mexican guerrillas, they came to a halt near a small village of Cameroon, south of Veracruz. As the coffee brewed, they were attacked and battle ensued. Their opponents, more than a 1,000, were well-armed and the legionnaires found themselves holed up in a small farm. They were soon out of water and the heat became oppressive. The Mexicans, under a white flag, came out suggesting the French surrendered as they were outnumbered, but Donjou refused, in part because he didn't think the Mexicans were well-armed. At first, things went the Legion's way, but when Donjou was killed and the Mexicans brought in reinforcements, they set fire to the building, 
with suffocating smoke. Still, no one wanted to surrender. They fought all day and had now run short of ammunition and were left with just three men standing and a couple more barely alive. They did eventually surrender, and the Mexicans were amazed that so few had fought for so long and so fiercely. When the relieving French forces reached there, they found the bodies had been devoured by vultures. The defence of Cameroon became enshrined in Legionnaire folklore, and the false hand of Donjou was rescued and is brought out every year on April the 30th and paraded to commemorate the battle. Now, the Legion remained in Mexico in a hopeless cause until 1867 when they were evacuated back to Algiers, and poor Maximilian was captured and executed. Now, many of the newer recruits who had deserted and joined the enemy, others saw it as a cheap way to reach the new world and start a new life in America, not as attractive or an easier option as they'd supposed. And many other potential recruits, knowing where they might be going, decided they didn't want to join. A war which had become increasingly unpopular had seen nearly 1,900 of the Legion die, more than 80% through disease. But sadly, no sooner had they got back to Algeria than the government decided to disband a large chunk of their force, and then the country was struck by a poor harvest and cholera. It almost made Mexico look like a haven. Now, the original decree when the Legion was established was clear. They were forbidden to serve in mainland France. But the disastrous Franco-Prussian War in 1870 saw a change of tack. A new battalion of volunteer legionnaires were assembled in France, and more, obviously excluding the Germans, arrived from Algeria. Their battles were a mixed bag. The French were beaten, and eventually Paris fell. And what followed was known as the Paris Commune, a radical and revolutionary group who took over the capital. Once more, the Legion came to the rescue. They were used to do the dirty work by the old government in exile as they assisted in the suppression of the uprising. Surprisingly, this was a highly controversial action that lasted for more than a century. But the Legion were about to enter its golden period as it was used in the French colonial expansions, including other parts of Africa and Indochina. Suddenly, it became a celebrated force. The French government didn't want to use its conscripted army, so the expansion was in the hands of the Legion. But there was one negative element emerging. The Germans had started to write inflammatory notices about the Legion, essentially calling them uncivilized criminals, all of which brought them a higher and unwanted profile, and the image as a refuge for those who had been in trouble elsewhere became even more firmly established. But how did you become a legionnaire? Well, recruitment took place in Paris or other large provincial towns on the German or Belgian border. One Englishman found his recruiting officer unexpectedly reluctant to take new blood, and most gave, and still do, a potential legionnaire 24 hours to think it over. Other recruits might have been arrested and given the option of jail or the legion. The medical was basic. The contract for five years indemnified the legion from pretty much everything a legionnaire might and usually did suffer. They would be sent to Marseille for a few weeks before getting the boat to Algeria. As they got the train to their base in Sidi Bel Abbey, they would often face skirmishes with locals if they stopped at stations. So more and more, the stops will be away from stations, in part to prevent desertion, as many began to realise their new life would contain many disappointments. Sidi Bel Abbey had grown up round a military camp set up in 1843 and would be the base for the Legion for more than a century. It would also become a hub for local market gardening. There's our farmer friend again. And many legionnaires would retire there to farm. 
The legionnaires joined under what was called an animat. You joined under an assumed name and had the freedom to create your own past. In some cases, they invented something very outlandish. Now, this was the case from the outset to the present day, though now, after the first year, you can revert to your real name. One English recruit in 1889, Frederick Martin, assessed his fellows. Men without work, who saw it as a better option than being homeless and sleeping under bridges, as you were guaranteed a bed, food and clothing as soon as you enlisted. Young adventurers, perhaps on a dare or a whim. Deserters from other armies, and even from the Legion itself, who re-enlisted under another name. The older adventurers, those who wanted to join to forget their mistakes, or would like the world to forget them. Some were middle class, but this category was very small and rather out of line with a typical legionnaire. And others, sometimes with good trades, just wanted a life without responsibilities. Patriotism wasn't high. Melancholy and depression was common amongst recruits. They fought under the banner of valour and discipline. Now, the mixed languages meant a lot of the training was practical, and many new recruits were lent out to local farmers as workers and were allowed to keep some of the wages they earned. They were so poorly paid in the Legion that every extra franc was needed, almost to survive. A lot of what they earned went on drink, but little on gambling, as they never had any extra money. New recruits sold their civilian clothes to the locals, helped and extorted by the veterans. Extra ways of earning money, including begging, was common, and many appeared to have become skilled tattoo artists. They would write home asking for money if they had family around, but in 1905, one infantry director wrote, the pay of the legionnaire when he is a young soldier is so low that he hesitates to even buy a stamp to send a letter. Their basic food was called soup, a monotonous stew served twice a day at 11 and 5. Between meals and training, a lot of attention was paid to cleaning the barracks and their uniform, including the rigorous polishing of their cartridge belt. Conversely, personal hygiene seemed to take a back seat. Each squad was allowed just one shower a week, so heaven knows what the barracks must have smelt like. The training would start with basic marching drills and then be ratcheted up to the stage where they had to carry 60 to 70 pound packs over longer and longer distances, many marches taking place at night. Failure to keep up might find an unlucky recruit tied by the soldiers to a pole jutting out from the baggage cart. As the heat of the summer increased, this must have been a hellish schedule. The acid sweat would burn them, the boots would fill with blood. Not a promising prospect. Now, perversely, this rigorous training seemed to engender a sense of personal and national pride. You didn't want to let your countrymen down, no matter how ill you felt. All this led once more to a constant complaint of brutality by the NCOs, and some old soldiers were also far too willing to lead new recruits astray. Personal combat in the form of dueling was common as a way of earning respect amongst the new boys. Now, in the last 15 years of the 19th century, the Legion was sent out in the vanguard of France's conquest of Indochina, which some legionnaires regarded as their second fatherland. It was certainly the last resting place of many after they arrived in Tonkin in what is now North Vietnam. Not, though, due to combat. One survivor said, dysentery is queen and malaria is king. Every year in one military cemetery, the corpses would be exhumed and put in a communal grave and the new inhabitants would take their place as they didn't want to enlarge the cemetery. Fighting was intense. 
In December 1884, 400 men at Tian Quang on the Clear River held out for 37 days against ferocious Chinese attackers. They fired 6,000 incoming rounds a day, exploded mines beneath the wars, and taunted the legionnaires by displaying the heads of their fallen comrades on bamboo sticks. Between 1887 and 1909, only 200 died in combat, while more than 2,700 perished from disease. Yet still the legionnaires were keen on taking their chances and appeared to have relished such a posting. They got extra pay for one thing and a far better quality of life. Others, less keen on seeing action, used the voyage as a way out, and many a legionnaire would try and jump overboard as the troop ship went through the Suez Canal. French involvement in Indochina went on for decades, on and off, ultimately with dire consequences. Now, around this time, one of their famous songs came into existence. It was called Le Boudin, and it is still the Legion's marching theme. Now, the Boudin was a form of black pudding. Now, whilst the tune had been around for some time, the words were added after the Franco-Prussian and Indochina wars. I'm going to play you a bit of it in a minute. Now, some of the lyrics refer to the lazy or shirking Belgians. This is because... The king of Belgium had requested that the Belgian soldiers should be left in Algeria in 1870 as he didn't want it to be used as an excuse for the Prussians to invade his country. to look at the words on it. We are, we are crafty, we are rogues, we are no ordinary guys, we often get our black mo- moods. That gives you some idea of what, what it must have been like. Now, as well as their eastern adventures, the Legion was sent to other parts of Africa and still are. Our British recruit, Frederick Martin, having survived Tonkin with black water fever, found life in Algeria rather boring and was on the verge of volunteering to return to the Far, far East when the chance to go to what is now Benin and Western Sudan came about. And amongst the forces reigned against them were Amazons, female warriors, as just as brutal and fearsome as their male comrades. Whilst the Legion was successful in this campaign, their adventures in Madagascar in 1895 were hindered by those who had no understanding of the conditions under which they fought. It proved to be the most disastrous military campaign of the Third Republic. The French foreign minister excused the mistakes made by the war ministry, whose organisation was not made for that, he said. Quite what a war ministry organisation was made for, we never know. But anyway, the death rate from disease was again catastrophic, about a third of the original 15,000 expedition. Basic hygiene and lack of supplies such as quinine having a major impact on the health of the troops. By 1905, the Legion were in a bad way, The good recruits driven out by the bad, the Germans, once a third of the legion had reduced in numbers, to be replaced by what one French general described as the sweepings of our own nationals. 
One of the bonuses of being in the Legion then and now was that after three years active and good service, you could apply to become a French national immediately if you were wounded. This had meant that some of the better soldiers could and had enlisted in French regiments. Now, the naturalization wasn't quite as automatic in practice as they would have wished, but it was an obvious attraction. Their replacements were a major worry for the Legion. They seemed unable to be imposed upon. They were extremely poor, yet they spent more time in the guardhouse than they did on sentry duty. But sometimes they were the best fighters. Inevitably, the Legion were involved in the First World War, serving on the Western Front and elsewhere with distinction. They had one of the most decorated regiments in the French army. Now, one of the heroes of the Legion was an American called Eugene Bullard. He'd come to the Legion via Scotland and Liverpool and had won the Croix de Guerre earlier in the war. Whilst on the injured list, he volunteered for the French Air Force and became the only black pilot in World War I. He earned the nickname the Black Swallow of Death. He survived and worked with the French Resistance during the Second World War and was awarded the Légion d'honneur. He returned to anonymity in the United States. But post-war, they needed a new face and voice, and in Paul Rollet, they found a man who revolutionized the way they operated. He brought back, or to be more accurate, reinvented traditions such as the celebration of Cameroon. He did succeed in bringing a better structure to their organization, though he had his idiosyncrasies. It's reported he would lead his men into battle with just a rolled-up umbrella. On his arrival, he was appalled by the appearance of many legionnaires. Some of those in Morocco and Syria were kitted out with American army surplus or clothes they bought in the local markets. One army official there as late as 1933 complained that men wore sandals whilst campaigning and one had turned out in his underpants. One of their most familiar symbols is the white kepi, the traditional cap. It dates back to the 1850s and was basically khaki with a white cover, either blanched by sun or repeated washing, but highly distinctive. Now, some officials wanted to abolish it, but it was much favored by veterans and, in effect, a rallying point. When an order came to dye them khaki, some rebelled by dyeing them a variety of colors, such as rainbow, or in the case of a machine gun regiment, light mauve. It was only in 1939 that it became part of the official parade uniform when they marched down the Champs-Élysées. Now, the white kepi is worn by ordinary legionnaires for guard duty and military ceremonies. Senior corporals, NCOs, and officers wear a black version, and normal service sees them in green berets. One other element of the traditional uniform was a blue sash, two and a half yards of cloth. Now, this tradition dated back to 1830, and was supposed to help them with intestinal disorders and keep them warm in African nights. Incidentally, these days, to qualify for a white cappy, a legionnaire has to complete a 50-mile march in two days. It then goes on to much more arduous training in the Pyrenees, where they have to have more combat training under night conditions. It sounds pretty horrendous. But Capi Blanc is also the name of their monthly magazine. One other revived tradition was their marching pace, 88 steps a minute, as opposed to 120 in the rest of the French army. Now, you might think that's because it was hot in Algeria, but it appears to have been a throwback to the large Swiss contingent who marched this slowly and who had been a major element of the original legion. 
This means, of course, they always march at the back of the Bastille Day Parade. Now, whilst anti-Legion propaganda had been prominent pre-war, in 1924, a new light was shed on the Legion, one written as fiction, Bogest. Now, the author, P.C. Wren, detailed the adventures of three orphaned English brothers who enlist separately in the French Foreign Legion following the theft of a valuable jewel from the country house of a relative. Experts say his depiction of life in the Legion was actually fairly accurate, but the romanticised elements took flight and led to several films with the leading Hollywood stars of the period. I've got a trailer for the 1939 films. Oh, just the spectacular adventure classic. Starring Gary Cooper, Ray Moland, and Robert Preston. Unbelievably, that film was banned in France till 1977. And they censored other versions as well. Now, the Legion uh, repeatedly complains that this stereotypical Legionnaire is still the one that filmmakers prefer, despite attempts to show them what really does go on. I'm not sure that the Laurel and Hardy parody called Bo Hunks was any closer to the truth. Whilst it's easy to dismiss the book and the films as trifles, they did in fact lead to a rise in recruitment, though many seem to ignore the true elements of life in the Legion, seduced by the more fanciful ones. In the 1930s, the Legion suffered by having recruits of opposing national factions, such as Germans of both pro- and anti-Nazi beliefs. Sometimes they feared other subversive elements, such as the Italians whose country was to be involved in Ethiopia and Eritrea. Many legionnaires wanted to return to their home armies to fight in the Second World War, and some Germans joined the German forces in North Africa, so the ranks were severely depleted. Overall, the legion's involvement was a little less in the Great War, partly because of the imposed neutrality of Vichy France in 1940, though some actually did fight for the Free French as well. But they still saw service in France and Norway, as well as Africa, including at El Alamein. Post-war, the ranks swelled with World War II veterans, some with very dodgy backgrounds. In theory, the SS were supposedly excluded. They used to have a tattoo, I believe, under their arm, and people tried to disguise the fact they had it to get in. Now, many of the legions saw action almost immediately because of the Indochina Wars of 1946-54. to 54. Starting in Vietnam, the Viet Minh, led by Ho Chi Minh, declared independence from France and fought aggressively with the upper hand in guerrilla warfare. The conflict lasted until 1954, during which time the Legion lost 10,000 men. It ended in a bitter and humiliating defeat for the French at Dien Bien Phu and a decline in morale for the returning Legionnaires. Hot on the heels of that was the Algerian War as it strove for independence. This was a bitter and bloody struggle, and some of the Legion felt sentimentally divided, After all, Algeria was their de facto home. They also found themselves fighting in Morocco, a deployment that had lasted several decades, and Tunisia before both became independent in 1956. And, of course, there was the little matter then of the Suez Crisis. Now, at times, it appears the Legion were an armed sticking plaster, sent all over to try and sort out some conflict or other. The eight-year struggle in Algeria for self-determination almost saw the Legion disbanded, 
1961, after attempted coup by a group of retired generals and its elite parachute regiment against President de Gaulle, it stood on the edge. The plotters wanted France to maintain its presence in Algeria. But an overwhelming referendum vote in 1962 went the other way. Interestingly, the coup had found little support in the Legion. They weren't very keen on their own paratroopers and their superior attitudes. Remarkably, the generals who were initially given jail sentences were granted amnesty, and several rejoined the army at a later date. Independence brought other problems. Around 900,000 pieds noirs, black feet, left Algeria to seek refuge in France, fearing reprisals by Algerian freedom fighters. These were people who were generally born in Algiers but had some French connection, however distant. And as soon as the referendum vote went in favour of independence, one group in Iran were actually surrounded and slaughtered. The watchword went round, suitcase or coffin. Now, the Legion left Algeria in 1962, acquiring in the process a new parade song, Je ne regrette rien, as they marched from their barracks. The parachute regiment were disbanded, The Legion reduced from 40,000 to 8,000 men. Many thought it was the end. Regiments seemed to come and go quite often, sometimes being created for specific campaigns and then disbanded. But to leave Sidi Bay, their base for over a century, seemed much more final. But it wasn't the last chapter. Several bases were established in Madagascar, Corsica and mainland France. In the last 70 years, they've seen duty as a rapid deployment force preserving French interests in their former African colonies and in peacekeeping operations. Chad, Djibouti, Central African Republic, Congo, Zaire, Rwanda, Somalia, Ivory Coast, Mali. The Legion has been involved in them all. But it's unlikely we've read anything about their activities. But they are seemingly almost the first French forces on call. They were also involved in the Gulf War, Bosnia, and Afghanistan, amongst other deployments. Men from 27 nationalities are part of its army today, with its major base near Marseille. Now, I say men, but there has been one woman. Her name was Susan Travers. She was born in London, and she joined the French Expeditionary Forces in 1939, just before the Second World War. Her career in the Legion started off as an ambulance driver, but her remarkable skill in avoiding landmines, rockets, and bullets earned respect amongst the men, who called her La Miss. She was named as a general in May 1945, and by the end of the 1990s, she'd been given the Medal Militaire, the Croix de Guerre, and the Légion d'Honneur, some of France's highest military awards. In theory, the Legion was open to women in the 1980s, but none have been accepted, though a few have tried. They can join the admin and support staff, they don't get to wear the famous Kepi Blanc. Now, amongst the interesting core within the Legion, my favourite and most distinctive are the pioneers. They are the only regiment allowed to have beards. Traditionally, they were sent to clear the path, and their life expectancy was very short. I think the theory was they started out clean-shaven, and if they survived, they would inevitably have grown a beard. It then became mandatory. Incidentally, in the similar regiment in the British Army the pioneer sergeant has a beard. They carry their axes, they have thick gloves and leather aprons. Now, a few interesting facts about the Legion. They are the only unit in the French army who iron their shirt creases, a distinction that began in World War II. They've had various mottos, valour and discipline, we saw. It's now honour and fidelité. 
I think what's remarkable, only between 10 and 15% of current recruits actually get accepted. They say the, the, the real training is a bit like um, SAS training. But if active service doesn't appeal, and I'm presuming there are no ex-legionnaires in the audience, actually, when we were at History this week, one of our groups said that he'd actually been imprisoned by the Legion. He was coming back through Africa, he was a student, and he'd gone too close to a, um, what they think was a nuclear base, and he was actually imprisoned on Christmas Day for a day. But if you want to support the Legion in other ways, you still can. They have their own vineyards. And as someone once said, Legionnaires drink to forget, but they never forget to drink. Thank you. This talk took place in the Farnham Maltings on Thursday the 22nd of November 2018. This podcast is produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.